that the baseball season is about to start is a reason for all of us to rejoice. Those of us who love baseball can celebrate that there actually will be a season this year. At least we're pretty sure there will be a season this year. And those of you who hate baseball can celebrate that the season will only be a third as long as usual. I haven't spent a lot of time studying the rule changes that accompany the shortened 60-game season, but I'm sure that there are lots of nuances that will affect the strategy, resulting in a really strange season worth remembering. Given the dangers of coronavirus, one area that I'm particularly interested in watching unfold is how Major League Baseball will handle trades from one team to another. One of the great traditions of baseball is assessing the likelihood of your team making a run through the playoffs as the trade deadline approaches. If the management of your team thinks that they have what it takes, perhaps even to win it all, then as the end of July comes near, they are likely to trade away lots of those unnamed or at least players with names we don't recognize, those young upstarts who haven't made it to the big leagues yet in order to secure one or two big name veterans who can add that little oomph to the clubhouse for that playoff run. But if the management realizes that this isn't going to be their year, then they're likely to dump those big name veterans, the stars who cost them a lot of money in order to acquire five, six, seven players that nobody knows, but that we hope might turn out to be the stars of another year. Given that the shortened season will begin almost as it is about to end, it's hard to know what those trades will look like. But I hope that at least one, at least one trade between one team and another will produce that most curious of circumstances where two teams make a trade between one another while they're playing against each other in the same stadium. I love it when that happens. I love it when a player shows up to work only to discover that just a few hours before the first pitch, he's been traded to the team he thought he was going to be playing against that day. When that happens, nobody has to get into a plane to catch up with their new team. All they have to do is grab their bag and walk down the concourse to the opposing clubhouse, check in with the new equipment manager who probably already has a jersey with that player's name on it hanging in a locker. Even though that change doesn't require a lot of distance, it comes with a lot of small changes, changes like getting new signs between the catcher and the pitcher, new strategy, a new place in the lineup for that player, a new pecking order in the clubhouse. But in addition to all those macro-level changes, what I'm really interested in is what it feels like to be that individual. What it's like to show up one day thinking that you're going to work alongside the friends and teammates you've come to love, only to discover that instead it's time for you to switch sides 
to go to the other team and to give your best effort to try to defeat the people you still know so well. What does that feel like? What does it feel like to change your loyalties that quickly? How long does it take for your new team to become your team? You might not believe it, but I don't really like using sports images for sermons. As a lifelong sports fan, they come pretty easily to me, but I recognize that lots of people, even here in a college town, don't like sports. It might be some comfort to me and perhaps even to you to remember that Paul liked to use sports images in his writing. He loved to describe the Christian life as if it were a race, a race that an athlete would run in order to obtain the prize. In today's reading from Romans, though, Paul uses a different image, not one of an athlete, but one of a slave to get his point across. And I don't think that human bondage is the kind of rhetorical device that a preacher can bring into a sermon without recognizing all of the terrible, horrible baggage that comes with it. So today, as we wrestle with what Paul writes in this part of Romans, I think the image of an athlete, the image of a player being drafted by or being traded from one team to another helps us understand what Paul was saying and understand it in a way that can work for us even today. What I think Paul is asking us is what team we're willing to play for. Where do our true allegiances lie? Are we willing to give our best for that new team, the one that has claimed us for its lineup, the one that has a jersey with our name on it hanging in our locker? Or are we going to drag our feet and mope about because we don't want to leave the team we know so well because we'd rather be playing with the people that we know and love, the people who help us know that we have a place among them. What will it be for us? For Paul and the early Christians, becoming followers of Jesus probably felt like that kind of radical change, the kind of change that comes when you're traded from one team to another in the middle of a homestand. When Paul wrote this letter, Christianity itself was only 20 years old, which means that those who were reading it, all of them had grown up in another tradition. Even if they were just teenagers, they knew what it meant to belong to a family that came from somewhere else, to have a different origin story for their spiritual lives. Most of us, on the other hand, have grown up in the Christian faith. Even if we weren't baptized as infants, we probably belong to people who have identified as Christians for centuries. So even if we spent most of our lives rejecting the faith of our parents and grandparents, even if we were only baptized as midlife adults, most of us, when we came to the church, did so not as if we were entering a foreign land or playing for a new team, but as if we were returning to an ancestral home. It's hard 
than for us to know how strange and difficult it must have been for Paul and the Christians in Rome to set aside their old habits, the pagan practices and celebrations, or the Jewish rituals and customs that they had to put down in order to embrace the way of Jesus. Most of us don't know that kind of radical change, but we do know what it feels like to be different. We know what it feels like to belong to one team even when we're surrounded by fans of another. We might belong to God, and our eternal home might be certain, but we still live in this world. We inhabit this life. We live in a place where the fulfillment of God's promises, the completion of that identity, isn't complete yet. A part of us belongs with God in heaven, but a part of us still lives here, stuck on earth, where evil and sin still reign. Much like those early Christians, our challenge then is figuring out how to live as if we belong completely to God, to God's team, even though we live in a world that so clearly doesn't belong to God. Paul knew how hard that was. The early church, the Christians in Rome, knew how hard that was. And I bet you know, in one way or another, what that challenge feels like every single day. How are you supposed to embrace the way of Jesus, the way of humility and poverty and meekness, when you live in a world in which greed and power and wealth are what get things done? How are you supposed to stand up for the marginalized in our society when that means turning your back on the friends and family who love you and whom you love? Paul offers a solution that I think works for us as well. He invites the Romans to consider again which team it is they're willing to play for. He writes, No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. The word that is translated for us as present also means to make yourself available to. So when Paul tells the Christians in Rome to present themselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, he's telling them to make themselves available to God, available to play this game, this work that God has set for them to accept their identity as ones who have been chosen to be on God's side and that as such it's time for them to suit up and get ready to play even if it means working against that team to which they used to belong, that team, that way they know so well. But the problem with being on Team Jesus is that most of us don't wake up in the morning 
and put on a uniform that reminds us what team we really belong to. Instead, we have to find our place and do our work in a world in which our true identity, our true allegiance is a lot harder to see than that. In a world where what team we're a part of is a lot more subtle and a lot more significant than the cross we wear around our necks or the window decal we place on the back of our cars. Yes, we can say our prayers. We can read our Bible. We can go to church. But belonging to God means a lot more than that. That's like catching and throwing and hitting. You do those things no matter what team you belong to. But if you're going to belong to God's team, if you're going to take your stand with Jesus, you have to offer yourselves to the work of righteousness. You have to give yourself over to the battle of undermining oppression, of ending evil in this world. You have to give up your wealth in order that poverty might be banished. You have to sacrifice your comfort in order that those who have no peace might find peace. In other words, you've got to do all of those uncomfortable things that Jesus told his followers to do because doing those things is what it means to belong to Jesus. Living that life here and now is what it means to be on God's side, to belong to God. If you are a Christian, you already belong to Jesus. If you are a Christian, you know whose side you're on. You know that you're on the same side as Jesus, the side of the one who was killed for the sake of the poor and the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed, the same team as the one who was put to death by power and wealth and domination in order that by winning the victory over death, those forces might be stripped of their power. That's who you are. That's what team you belong to. That's the team that has chosen you to be with them. It's time to stand up with that team. It's time to stop being silent. It's time to stop ignoring who you are and who God has made you to be. It's time to stop allowing part of yourself belong to those old habits, those old powers, and instead present yourself wholly to God as an instrument for God's righteousness. That's who you are. You cannot be with Jesus if a part of you is still subject to the powers of this world, to the greed and the racism and the oppression and the marginalization of human beings. It's time to play on the same side as Jesus. It's time to give your life to the work of Jesus. It's time to remember what side you're on, the side that has chosen you to be a part of that team. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.